And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for uh, joining me today. This is my favorite time of the day, this afternoon time when you and I get to hang out. So it's really nice that we um, can have this time together. And I'm always looking forward to figuring out a way to make it the best hour for you. Time well spent. Grow you in your faith. Uh, keep you company along the way. Maybe it's time to uh, crack out a cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea, or maybe you're stuck in traffic, and this is going to make it a little bit easier as you travel home after a long day. I hope your day went well. I hope uh, maybe you're just getting in your car heading to work, like some people I know. They're heading to work now, and so their day's just their work day just getting started. So nice to uh, catch you either direction, whether you're just coming home or heading out. Um, going to be. Uh, Looking forward to the hour. Um, So I'm going to just say a quick prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, this beautiful day we have. And I ask that we can all take a moment just to reflect with gratitude in our hearts for our Savior, our Jesus, and the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives and meets us in our time of need. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Let's take a little break and get the day started. Welcome back to the show. I am delighted to be talking to Rebecca McLaughlin. She is a PhD in English literature from Cambridge University and co-founder of the Vocable Communications. I hope I said that right. She's a regular contributor to the Gospel Coalition and her new book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, has my immediate attention because of all the great questions she asks. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Hi, Phil. It's great to be here. <laughs> you you are not afraid to tackle the tough ones, are you? Ah, uh, well, I don't know if I'm not afraid, but I, I'm foolish enough to, to do it nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about the perception today of Christianity and atheism, and how yeah. has that changed in in recent times? Actually, when I was was growing up in the UK, um, there was certainly a, a strong sense of um, within my peer group and a kind of pretty secular and academic um, environment, that Christianity was declining and that really atheism and particularly a sort of secular humanism that that wants to hold on to a high view of um, human value and human equality without the need for God was going to fairly effortlessly replace Christianity in the coming decades. Mm -hmm. I think what's taken everyone by surprise, and this is a memory that's, that's only starting to trickle back into the university, is that the, this idea that modernization was going to bring secularization globally as it, as it did in Western Europe um, actually hasn't played out at all. <laughs> in fact, if we're looking forward to the next um, generation, next couple of generations, we're actually going to see an increase in religion globally, um, a, an increase in Christianity, a significant increase in Islam, and the proportion of people globally who are identifying as, as non-religious, be it atheist, agnostic, or just of no particular religion, is actually going to decline. Oh. So I think that's kind of a shock, a shock to the system for many of my non-believing friends. Oh, it is indeed. What would you think would be the most controversial uh, point of, of Christianity today? I think for us in uh, today's sort of Western culture, the, the issue um, that can be most pressing is the questions around sexuality. Mm-hmm. For many of my friends, a lot of my Christian beliefs can seem like delusions to them and, you know, things they, they might think I'm, I'm gullible for believing but when it comes to Orthodox Christian beliefs uh, in, in terms of sexuality and, and in terms of marriage, 
um, I think there we cross over in the minds of our friends from delusional to bigoted. And so there's a kind of moral force to the objections to Christianity there. Um, I would love for you to say more about that, because I think that is one of the uh, hottest topics right now. And it's one of the ones where uh, Christians feel like they're going to be persecuted and they're going to be labeled and they're going to be made fun of. And I just want to make sure we have the strength and we're not backing down from our position. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, we, as Christians, we should never uh, shy away in some ways from being persecuted. That was what happened at the early church. That's that was true. happening to three of our brothers and sisters globally. And, and actually, the reality that we're experiencing in the West here of it being in many ways very comfortable to be a Christian is what is more atypical. So on that, on that first one, I don't think we should worry about being persecuted in some senses. Uh, on the second point, I think that, that we have a real problem in the church that we don't actually understand the gospel logic that stands behind what the Bible says about sexuality. So many of, of my Christian friends and folks I get to chat with know that the Bible you know, ha- has um, clear boundaries around sex and um, you know, that, that that's preserving sex for marriage between one man and one woman for life. And they know that there are particularly prohibitions around same-sex relationships of a sexual nature, um, meaning that we can't, as Christians, embrace same-sex marriage. But seldom do we actually know why that is. See, they feel like arbitrary rules that God should have put in the Bible just just to be, they make our lives complicated and difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly for me, I mean, I've, since childhood, been romantically attracted to women. This is a a personal question for me. And were, were I not a Christian, um, it's likely that I would be married to a woman today rather than to a man. So I don't, I don't come to these questions with the desire to find the Bible saying actually no to same-sex marriage. But as I've dug more and more into the scriptures, I've been more and more convinced that what lies at the heart of, of biblical sexuality is actually the gospel. Because if we look in the, the Old Testament, we see this incredible metaphor of God and his people being compared to a faithful husband and an often unfaithful wife. Mm-hmm. And then in the Gospels, we see Jesus stepping onto the human stage and declaring that he is the bridegroom. And we see John the Baptist saying, you know, my joy, I, I'm so full of joy because I'm like the friend of the bridegroom when the bridegroom's shown up. And Jesus is the bridegroom. We're thinking, well, if Jesus is the bridegroom, who's the bride? And we get the answer to that question bubbling up in multiple New Testament texts, not least in Ephesians 5, when Paul describes human marriage as a little sort of scale model of Christ's relationship with the church. And then we see it massively coming back with a bang in the book of Revelation when the uh, the angels announce that the wedding of the Lamb has come and Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. So as as we approach questions of sexuality of any sort within a biblical framework, we've got to realize that it's actually all about giving us a glimpse of Jesus' love for us. Just as as human fatherhood at, at its best gives us a tiny taste of what it means for us to call God our Father, so the best possible human marriage gives us a little glimpse of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. So, and I think that logic lies at the heart also of, of the reason why marriage is between uh, a man and a woman and not between two men or two women, because Jesus' love for his church is actually love across difference. Mm-hmm. Um, is sexuality the big issue outside the Western world? Does the third world have a different uh, set of objections? Well, this is very interesting because in our cultural conversations, often... Um, Sexuality and diversity is is sort of mixed in with racial diversity. So mm-hmm. you know, we think of this category of diversity, which means both um, love across racial difference, but also it is the same sex marriage, same sex sexuality. 
actually, if we look in, in global terms and, and we look at um, folks from non-Western cultures, uh, there's much less acceptance of, of same-sex sexuality. So it's interesting if, if our friends are calling anyone who would stand against um, same-sex marriage a, a bigot and a, equivalent to a, a racist, you know, sort of comparing the the gay rights movement today to the civil rights movement of the 60s, most of the people they are dismissing in, with that language are actually not white. The folks who are much more likely to uphold same-sex marriage are actually white Westerners, um, not the majority world. So I think there's a kind of interesting dynamic at play there. Mm-hmm. In your uh, book, one of the questions you tackle bravely is, isn't Christian Christianity homophobic? So if we're going to stay in this conversation just for now... How did you address that in your book? Yeah, so I think, uh, again, as I come to these questions as somebody for whom they are very personal, uh, and I have searched the scriptures on, on this topic, and there are a few things to say. To say one, um, the Bible says very offensive things about people who uh, engage in, in same-sex um, sexual activity, but the Bible says even more offensive things about people who are self-righteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reality is any of us coming to the scriptures as we open the pages of God's Word, we should be offended by what we see. The, the Bible is an offensive book from beginning to end. And what's fascinating, as, as Jesus speaks about questions around sexuality, he actually he tightens up the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there was some provision for divorce, and Jesus uh, actually tightens that up. Um, he says, you know, you've heard that it was said um, you shouldn't commit adultery. Well, I say anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. So far from being a kind of prophet of free love, Jesus is actually, he, he makes uh, the, the demands of, uh, um, of sexual restraint on Christians more strict than they ever were before. But he's also the guy who's hanging out with prostitutes and, quote, sinners. Mm-hmm. And, and anyone who comes to Jesus with a posture of brokenness over their sin is received and welcomed and embraced. And anyone who comes with a kind of pharisaical self-righteousness and thinks that they don't need Jesus um, is actually like those are the folks against whom Jesus is, is railing. So I think we, we have to recognize that um, the, the offensiveness of, of Christianity is, is, is primarily against the self-righteous. And at the same time, we have to recognize that a significant number of the first Christians came to Christ from um, homosexual backgrounds and experiences. Um, we see this in, in one of Paul's letters where he's, he's addressing, um, you know, folks who've, who've come to Christ out of, out of that background. And so I think sex is actually very important biblically. But I think every Christian is called to sexual self-control, whether you know, you're, you're single as a Christian or whether you're married. It, the question is not, are you ever attracted to somebody you're not married to? The question is, will you submit your attractions to Christ? And because the Bible gives us marriage and, and um, sex within marriage as well as a picture of our relationship with Jesus and our, our desire for oneness with him. Actually, anytime we are feeling the, the pull of desire toward another human, that's, that's almost like a little uh, indicator to us of, oh, this, this is something which one day will be fulfilled in our relationship with Christ. You know, just as we have water and the idea of thirst to give us a glimpse of what it means to thirst for Jesus, the living water, and just as we we have bread and food to give us an understanding of what it means when Jesus says he's a bread of life and we should hunger for him. So our desire for sexual intimacy is something that should point us to Jesus and to its ultimate fulfillment one day when we're united with him forever. 
Mm-hmm. Rebecca, how have you personally come to regard interpreting Scripture? I mean, do you favor a metaphorical interpretation or literal? And if so, uh, why? Yeah, I always, I always enjoy this question because my background's in, in English literature and I spent a year studying metaphor, particularly in, in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the big misconceptions that I think we often have in the church is that you either take the Bible literally or you don't, that it's like this on-off switch, it's one or the other, and it's, it's inconsistent somehow to take parts of the Bible literally and other parts not. And actually, if you read only Jesus' words, if you pick up a, you know, one of those red-letter Bibles that only highlights Jesus' words, you'll see that Jesus uses metaphors all the time. I mean, I've already referenced a, a few of them, like when Jesus says he's the living water, or when he says he's the bread of life, or when he says he's the true vine. Mm-hmm. He's not asking us to believe that he's literally a plant. He, he's tapping into this rich metaphor from the Old Testament of Israel as a vine and God as the vine dresser. And so if we confuse the idea of true with the, the concept of literal, we actually miss a lot of the truth the Bible has to teach us. At the same time, that doesn't at all give us a license to you know, not take literally some of the uncomfortable and difficult things that the Bible teaches for example, miracles, in particular, you know, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which the New Testament authors are at pains to make us recognize is, is an absolutely literal bone, flesh and wounds resurrection. So I, I don't think that reading the Bible and attending to its metaphors and its parables and its stories at all releases us from its incredible claims and hard teachings. Mm-hmm. Rebecca McLaughlin is my guest. She has written a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. We will take a very short break and be back with Rebecca in just a minute. Welcome back to the show. I am delighted to be talking to Rebecca McLaughlin. She's written a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. As I think about the suffering that goes on in the world, I know that's a big issue for a lot of people, especially with apologetics. One of the questions you address in your book is how could a loving God allow so much suffering? How did you Mm. address that in the book? We tend to come to the Bible with the assumption that if God really loved us, he could not intend for us to suffer. Mm -hmm. And there's some you know, logic to that. But actually, that assumption crumbles on pretty much every page of the scriptures. (laughs) It does indeed. Uh, The Bible is written almost exclusively by suffering people and for suffering people. I think it's possible that the Song of Songs doesn't speak much to suffering, but otherwise, pretty much every other book of the Bible is very real about suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think as with any other aspect of our life, God has, has built into our experience ways in which we can engage with, with him and meet with Jesus. And I think what's, what's unique about the Christian faith when it comes to suffering is that the suffering of an innocent man, beaten, humiliated, abandoned, abused, dying on a cross, is right at the heart of our faith. It is literally the central peg of Christianity. And, uh, and that is a, a brutal experience of suffering that is then redeemed through the experience of, of the resurrection. And so we as Christians are called to meet Jesus in our suffering, terrible as that may feel at the time, um, but we are also called to a suffering that, that has at its foundation a hopefulness that we are engaging with the one man who can call dead people out of their graves and who mm. will one day wipe away every tear from, from our eyes. And the, the Bible passage that I find most helpful on this question is 
actually in, in John's gospel, when Jesus um, is called by Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus is sick and he's dying. And, and Jesus intentionally waits until Lazarus is dead before going to, to Mary and Martha. And, and the, the text is very interesting. It says, because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and their brother, he waited. He didn't go. You think, well, wait a minute. That's the, surely if he loved them, he would go. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. He waits. And then when he comes to Martha, he has this extraordinary conversation with her where he points out that what she thinks is her greatest need is for, for him to raise Lazarus from the dead. But actually, her greatest need is for him. And that's when he says those famous words, I am the resurrection of the life. Um, anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Uh, and so I, I think that's a beautiful moment of the Bible showing how we meet with Jesus in our suffering. But then we have Jesus going to the graveside with the sisters and weeping over Lazarus and the marvel of the Son of God sort of shedding tears over the death of this man and the suffering of his friends. And then we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And I think those, those four moves, to me, give us a rich biblical theology for understanding suffering and knowing that it's a place where we meet Jesus and where we can trust him um, to bring to completion what he's promised for us. Rebecca, that those two responses, the the one to Martha, you know, he kind of gets in her face a little bit. I'm the resurrection and the life. And with Mary, he just weeps. And I think it's so beautiful on so many levels. Am I, I ask myself, am I always willing to step into people's discomfort? I mean, Jesus knew what he was going to do to Lazarus, yet he spent time just weeping with Mary. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing, that he knows the end of the story all along. I know. Uh, and, he's, and yet he's with us in it. And that is something that we as Christians can cling to every day of our lives. I'm, I'm, I agree. All right. Another question that you address in the book, and I love this one because this comes up all the time. I mean, really, how could a loving God send people to hell? I think this is the only truly, genuinely hard question that I address in the book. And I don't say that to <laughs> minimize the challenge of the other ones. Okay. But because I think uh, from, a, from my perspective as a Christian, this is, this is really where the, the rubber hits the road. And it's the, the hardest question to grapple with. At the same time, it's a beautiful question because it forces us to to share the gospel with people. Um, And I think one of the misconceptions that people often have about hell, actually, whether they're Christians or not, is they think of hell primarily as a place to which people get sent Mm -hmm. on the basis of seemingly arbitrary beliefs. And in fact, I think the the biblical picture of hell is is far more relational than that. If, as I was saying earlier, if Jesus is the living water, then to be without him is to be desperately thirsty. If he is the bread of life, then to be without him is to to be painfully hungry. And if he is the light of the world, to be without Jesus is to be lost in the darkness. And the, the, the Christian faith opens up for us the possibility of coming back into relationship with the one who made us and into a relationship that's actually far more intimate than um, than even you know, the picture that we, we get of, of relationship with God and, and Genesis of, of Adam and Eve um, before they, they sinned, where they knew God as creator, but not as, not as savior, not as lover, not as um, one body with them. Um, but just as with any other marriage, if, if we reject that offer, that proposal from Jesus, uh, he will ultimately reject us. Um, I think of you know, my, my husband proposed to me, I guess nearly 13 years ago now. And if I had said no to him, 
for me to turn around now and object to the fact that I didn't get to live in his house with him and I didn't get to be intimate with him in all these ways, I didn't get to raise children with him, um, you know, would raise, raise the question of, well, you, you had that option and you, you turned it down and now you're, you're facing the consequences of, of that choice. Um, and likewise, I think Jesus offers himself to us uh, and um, if we turn away from him now, uh, that door won't always be open. It, it, it's open for a long time, but one day it'll shut. And that's when we will recognize quite how much we have lost. Wow, that was really beautifully stated. Rebecca, talk a little bit about the nuns, the people that are going, ah, I got nothing. I, I'm just, my religion is zip, zilch, nothing. It is growing proportionally in the U.S., and it can feel like, oh my goodness, this is just like a, a massive wave that's washing over America, if you track generation to generation, people who are brought up as Protestant in the U.S. have an 80% chance of still identifying as Protestant as adults, hmm. whereas people who are brought up non, non-religious have only a 60% chance of still identifying as non-religious as adults. It's quite an unstable category being non-religious. And there's also a fascinating uh, wealth of data around the fact that regular religious participation, so going to church once a week, is demonstrably good for your mental and physical health and for your... Um, you know, the way that you relate to others in the community. So we all know that eating more fruits and vegetables is good for us. Turns out going to church once a week is equivalently good for you health-wise. People who go to church every week give three, 3.5 times more money to charity than, than their non-attending friends. They volunteer twice as much. They're half as likely to be engaged in domestic violence. They're less likely to commit at least 43 other crimes. The list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, the benefits of regular religious participation are quite substantial. And so the idea that actually the world would just be better off if, if we gave up on all this religion business is is verifiably untrue. You are so interesting. I'd love to have you back. Uh, thank you for being a guest. All right. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. You bet. Rebecca McLaughlin has been my guest. Her book, again, is Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. We'll take a short break and be right back in just a minute. This is a happy part of my day. Hey, it's Monday. B, I get to talk to Wayne Peterson, manager of KTIS, for, I don't know, about 14, 15 years maybe. I think that sounds about right. And also the executive director of Skylight. And then also just the executive vice president of radio here at the University of Northwestern. Now he works with FEBC, which stands for Far East Broadcasting, and then some word that starts with the letter C. Um, And also serves on the board of Joel Rosenberg. And just got back from Saudi Arabia last week. Wayne, welcome. Well, thank you. And uh, Joel was the leader of the delegation on that trip. So it was quite a privilege uh, as a friend and uh, colleague of Joel Rosenberg to visit some of the highest level uh, officials in Saudi Arabia. It's pretty neat. Yeah, I want to hear all about it. And then the FEBC, is it a Far East Broadcasting Company? You got it, yes. Okay, good. It was started 75 years ago. And they do shortwave and medium wave and FM and uh, internet broadcasting throughout all of Asia, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, that part of the world. Yeah. Now, there's so much that I want to ask you about your trip to Saudi Arabia. When you got there, you, you didn't have to call an Uber, did you? <laughs> you know, we were uh, we were visiting royalty 
We were treated royally. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that they uh, they were there on the tarmac and walked us through security and they had black uh, Mercedes lined up to take us to the hotel. And everywhere we went, we had a motorcade with us and it, w- it was pretty neat. Well, it sounds like a once in a lifetime experience, but I'm just so excited to hear about some of the the steps that have been taking place in the relationship between evangelicals and, and the Arabian culture? Well, uh, it's actually been a two or three times in a lifetime experience. It started out when the king of Jordan, King Abdullah of Jordan, read one of Joel's books. Joel writes about biblical prophecy and Mideast current events. And his aide gave him the book, said, you need to read this book. The king said, why should I read it? And he said, because you're in it. (laughs) Well, that ended up with an invitation from the king of Jordan for Joel to visit Amman and uh, spend three or four days in the palace meeting with his cabinet and talking about biblical prophecy and end times and uh, what the Bible says about current events. Uh, That led to a meeting uh, that... um, that Joel and I, with a number of other evangelical leaders, had in New York City with the the president of Egypt, President Sisi. Uh, We met with him in his hotel suite at the opening of the United Nations. We had 90 minutes with him where he uh, said that all the churches that were burned down by the Muslim Brotherhood during Arab Spring, uh, the government is rebuilding them. Uh, He has built a large Christian cathedral near the presidential grounds, uh, that seats 6,000 people as a demonstration to Egypt and the world that Christians are welcome here. Uh, from that came an invitation from uh, the uh, foreign minister from the United Arab Emirates, who introduced us to the foreign minister from Saudi Arabia, saying, come and visit us. So Joel led a group of 10 evangelicals to Saudi Arabia last November, and we visited the UAE, first of all, And then Saudi Arabia, second of all, meeting with the crown prince and his officials in each of those countries. And most recently, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia invited us back for a second visit uh, during just this past uh, couple of weeks. So we took a group of 10 evangelical leaders and we met with the crown prince for three hours. We met with the foreign minister, the head of defense, the head of uh, Muslim religious affairs, the uh, U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia and the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. And it was just amazing time of speaking very frankly, openly, in a friendly manner to people that we for years considered the enemy to find out that they have an interest in knowing more about what evangelicals believe. It's an opportunity for us to get to know the Arabic culture better and to better understand some of the challenges and and social reforms that are taking place there today. Wayne, aren't you just some kid that grew up on a dairy farm? Hey, this is pretty tall. This is pretty tall cotton for <laughs> a kid that uh, was uh, uh, shoveling grain and other things on a dairy farm. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the um, just, for example, there's about 80,000 Americans working in Saudi Arabia right now. Is that correct? That, that's correct. In fact, 90 percent of the population are expats. that are there working with technology and the oil fields. Petroleum, of course, is the number one industry. And so there are a lot of expats living there. 
many of them, uh, especially some of the Filipino uh, descent that work there as nannies and servants are strong Christians. So there is a presence of Christianity there. And it's uh, the Crown Prince is making massive social reforms. Women can now drive. Women can go to sporting events. They can leave the country without their husband or father. Uh, the wearing of the Habibs in public uh, is optional. And so many reforms are being made, uh, including a greater tolerance and acceptance for other religions, uh, Jewish and Christian, and also a strong stand against terrorism and extremism. And, uh, for example, they've uh, fired 3,000 imams that were teaching extremism in the mosques. And uh, they have uh, signed memos of agreement with the Jewish community, the Catholic community, uh, for tolerance and protection. And, uh, for example, even though churches are not allowed, uh, we were told, uh, we're not ready for that yet. The terrorists would burn them down. But Christians are welcome to meet in their homes, to worship in their homes, uh, without interference from the government. Mm -hmm. Wayne, is there an agenda underneath the agenda? Well, obviously, for Saudi Arabia, the relationship with the United States is uh, very important, and especially now since the Iranian bombs from Yemen have come in and been bombing the oil fields and refineries and the ships, uh, it's interesting that the top leadership of both Saudi Arabia and the U.S. are in tandem about fighting ISIS, fighting mm. Iran, fighting the terrorism. So that's a very big thing. But the other thing... Uh, what we have heard is the 9-11. Uh, the, the we were there on September 10th, the day before 9-11. It was a wake-up call for the rest of the Arab community, the moderate, peace-loving uh, Muslims and Arab community. And we need to stand up against terrorism and extremism when we see how murderous and harmful it is. Many Muslims have been killed and uh, tortured by Muslim extremists, but so have Christians. So it's a, where, uh, it's a way of showing that we're standing up against extremism and terrorism uh, in, in the Arab community. And it's also a message to the world that uh, uh, they're open to more diversity in their culture, more tolerance of other cultures and other religions. And so it's a message to their own people, to the Arabic community and to the world that their society is changing and uh, changing very rapidly with all the social reforms. So, Wayne, I'm curious, this Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, how old of a man is he? Well, he's uh, the, the king, King Salman, is still alive, but the Crown Prince, his son, is really uh, running the country with the support of the king. Uh, king Mohammed, or Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is 33. He's okay. a young man. He's being, entered, uh, he's being mentored by the older crown prince in the United Arab Emirates, who's in his 60s. They've uh, joined forces. But he is very approachable, uh, very fun, very uh, nonchalant, uh, very friendly and warm, even a great sense of humor. And he is showing a whole new face for the leadership of the Arab world, particularly Saudi Arabia. And he's getting this blessing from dad, huh? Dad is blessing it. That's fantastic. We were hoping we were hoping to get a meeting with the king this time, but uh, weren't able to arrange that. But, for example, the king called a meeting of the top twelve hundred Muslim scholars for a meeting in Medina, and they signed a covenant of Medina, 
which gives protection to people of other religions, that, uh, that recognizes the right of Christians historically uh, to exist, to create openness and relationship with the Jewish community, with the Christian community and other communities. So the top 1,200 scholars agreed to this charter of Medina, as it's called, and it's making a difference in the relationship in Saudi Arabia, but throughout the Muslim world, about a more uh, friendly, open uh, dialogue with people of other faiths. Wayne, I almost think you're you're catching listeners off guard because they're <laughs> probably not believing what you're saying. At some level, well, if, if you went up to a person and said uh, Saudi Arabia has recently, uh, you know, let three thousand imams go because they were teaching extremism and terrorism, so they fired them. True or false? I think most people go, eh, that sounds false. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is unbelievable. And uh, frankly, uh, Bill, we've taken some criticism for evangelicals meeting there. But how do we change a culture unless we have a relationship? How do we how do we have trust unless we spend time with them and building trust between both parties? But uh, the uh, U.S. ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia said, even if the crown prince accomplishes 50% of what he set out to be. It'll be amazing. And uh, yes, it, uh, this would have been unimaginable five years ago, 10 years okay. ago. But seriously, it's taking place today. It's unbelievable. So the crown prince must have some uh, agenda when it comes to uh, trying to have economic stability. I mean, he must be interested in things like technology and tourism and things like that. Well, uh, definitely, because petroleum is almost the sole industry, they realize that fossil fuels are going to have a limited lifespan. So they are seeking to develop other forms of energy, solar and nuclear. Uh, they are developing the whole field of technology, and that's why they want to work with Israel, because Israel is a technology leader. They're also focusing a great deal on tourism, finding ways to attract more tourists to Saudi Arabia. They're investing uh, $300 billion in a new tourist center, which is just in the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia, just south of, uh, of Jordan. So they, they see that opening up to the Western world and encouraging women to take leadership in the marketplace is very important to their economic growth. Now, Wayne, you went over there and had VIP treatment, but if you didn't have VIP treatment and you got to Saudi Arabia, would it be a, a place you'd want to go visit? Well, one of the top tourist spots uh, right now is, uh, you know, they're, they're already welcoming uh, American and European tourists to, to come to the country. So it's very common to see not only uh, women in their habibs and men in their uh, kafayas and gowns, but also Western dress as well is very, very common. Uh, we did have security everywhere we went, but we felt very, very safe in that culture. So uh, at least in the large cities where we were at in, uh, in Jeddah and in uh, Irad, uh, we felt very, very safe because Westerners are, are very common and very much accepted there. Mm -hmm. Wayne Peterson's my guest. We're learning about his trip to Saudi Arabia. We'll take a short break and be back with Wayne in just a minute.
Welcome back to the show. Wayne Peterson's my guest. Was here at KTIS for a long, long time. And he's a um, now with FEBC, our Eastern Broadcasting Company, and also serves on the board of Joel Rosenberg's Helping Israel Ministry. Just got back from a great trip to Saudi Arabia. We're learning all about that. So, Wayne, uh, do I understand correctly that there has been some scholars that are trying to uh, rework the Koran a little bit to make it a little bit more friendly? You know, they uh, will probably not change the Koran because they treat that as their holy scripture sure. and revere it as much as we revere our Bible. However, they are changing definitions of some words. And, you know, there are there are violent uh, parts of, of the Koran. There's also much about the prophet Jesus in the Koran. They uh, regard Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad as their top prophets, and they recognize uh, that Jesus is coming back again as a great prophet to judge the nations and rule the world. It's right in the Quran. But uh, for example, and I'm not a Arabic scholar by any means, uh, all I know is thank you, shukran, <laughs> but uh, they, for example, the word jihad has been interpreted recently to be violent opposition against people of other faiths. They said the original word was just opposite, that uh, jihad means covering or protection. For example, Muhammad uh, signed a jihad, a memo of agreement, with the monks 1,400 years ago, that they would be allowed to live in the kingdom, and they would, they would have the protection of the Saudis, of the Muslims. They'd be able to continue to live there. So that's the, the, the translations are coming out saying, Jihad means is we're going to protect one another, not kill one another. So they're trying to change the definitions, going back to these scholars finding the original language, much like Christian scholars are going back and looking to the uh, original language and finding ways uh, in in their scholarly way to uh, more accurately and more peaceably portray Islam now. Saying all of that, Bill, they still have a long ways to go. I'm not saying it's a perfect place with terrific freedom and Christians are welcome and the and the culture is changing. But it has made tremendous amount of progress, which we want to applaud. But they have a long ways to go, which uh, we uh, encourage. And when we met, we asked about when will we be able to build churches? When will some of the political prisoners that have been uh, in prison for a number of years, some of the protesters, when they'll be released? So we did have a chance to advocate for uh, those in prison, to advocate for Christians to have churches and more freedom of religion. And it was kind of the the words were not yet, but watch us kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Not, we're not ready yet, but but keep watching. Yeah. What about uh, churches that are in homes? Are they being, being able to conduct uh, without interference from the government? Well, the word was that... It, Christians are free to gather and worship and pray and teach uh, behind their own gates, uh, inside their doors, inside their homes. But uh, for a public display of Christianity of any kind, uh, for building a church, uh, that would be uh, a problem in their culture. So uh, in a way, I took that as protection, you know, continue to have freedom to worship, but uh, don't take it out of the streets or you'll get in, in trouble. Mm-hmm. And that day, the day may come when we can be more open, but but not now. 
So uh, the, the Christians at least have the assurance that when they meet in homes, they're not going to be disturbed or harassed. Yeah. Wayne, when I looked at this and read this, this was, you know, I wanted to ask you how you dealt with this. When the crown prince, who obviously Muslims don't accept Jesus as the son of God, but the crown prince has stated on two different occasions that Jesus is the savior of the world. We have him in our holy books and he's coming back again to judge the nations and rule the world. But savior of the world means something very different to the Muslims, doesn't it? Well, well, it does. And going back to what I said earlier about that Jesus is going to come back at the end of the end of time and save the world. By that, they mean uh, he's going to judge the nations, uh, the good nations and the evil nations, and he will r- rule in the new world that will be set up. Now, when we say Jesus is the savior of the world, we mean a John 3.16 kind of savior, that mm-hmm. he, the Son of God came into the world and gave his life so that we could have our sins forgiven and live forever. Uh, Muslims don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. Uh, Muslims don't believe that he rose again from the dead and that he will save us individually from our sins. But they do have in their writings that he's coming back to be the, can we say, political savior of the world, but not a personal savior like we would uh, claim to hold to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So your delegation, again, Wayne, were there 10 people in your delegation? There were uh, exact number 10 or 12, okay. representing a number of uh, ministries. We had a couple of pastors with us. We had a couple of people that are involved in the political world in the, in the current administration. We had some ministry organizational uh, leaders as well. So it was a it was a nice mix of uh, pastoral religious organizations and uh, some people high up in the in the political world in yeah. the U.S. Did you get any criticism for meeting with the people in Saudi Arabia? We've had some, but it's been minor. But uh, I posted something on the Facebook that uh, people came back quoting all of the hundreds of people that have been killed in Saudi Arabia how 10 of the terrorists from 9-11 were trained in, in Saudi Arabia. And so we've had some of that, uh, you know, how can you, how can you say that they're changing or they're a peaceable people when they have this track record? But I would say, you know, that was then, uh, this is now, it's a new day. And like I've said, they're, you know, the, dealing with the Khashoggi killing, for example, the journalist that was killed in Turkey is a huge issue. Uh, uh, among us even today. And we don't really understand what happened there. And uh, those perpetrators of the killing of Khashoggi have been fired. Uh, they're going to go on trial and go to prison for, for their crimes. We were told that by by some of their political types. But uh, so they're, they're still working on it. And it takes a while for this new message of moderation and tolerance to work its way through the culture. But starting at the very top levels of the Muslim world, the Arabian uh, political world, uh, they're making some pretty important steps to change the textbooks of the schools and the mosques to teach kids. Fifty uh, percent of the population in Saudi Arabia is under age 25. So working on this next generation to provide a different educational platform with different language and different sources and different interpretations is a huge deal. So we may not see it fulfilled in this generation, but certainly preparing the next generation for a different tolerance to stand up against what the Ayatollah revolution in Iran brought about in 79, creating an Arab state. 
most Muslims have no interest in creating an Arab state. They just want to be a religion that's devoted to their God. And their understanding of their God, of course, is different from our understanding of Jehovah, Yahweh, our Father in heaven. So, Wayne, um, when I think of this door that God is opening in Saudi Arabia, what would be a word that would describe this? Is this, this would be almost unprecedented, wouldn't it? Unprecedented, uh, historic, uh, life-changing. This is a lot like the first century. First century Christians, where did they meet? They didn't meet in the temples uh, when they were being persecuted. They met in their homes. They were dealing with a very corrupt, probably one of the most corrupt empires in the history of the world, the Roman Empire. And uh, they were the Christianity thrived under that, even though believers at that time were a teeny tiny minority in first century Israel. But the gospel spread from Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost to every known language group in the world at that time, all operating under and uh, within the Roman Empire system. And yet God blessed the church and it grew. And Paul, whenever he had an opportunity, spoke to Governor Festus, Governor Felix, even to the point of uh, going to Caesar himself in Rome. And uh, tradition has it that he gave the gospel to Caesar at that time. So these days in the 21st century remind me very much of the first century with the life-changing, world-changing, explosive uh, freedom and Christianity coming along. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we're going to live peaceably with other faiths uh, and, and people from other cultures, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or on our block here yeah. in the U.S., we have to always be looking to build relationships with people. Well, we t- well, you know, when I see uh, women in their habibs or, you know, men with their kafaya uh, cars, I tend to avoid them. Yeah. And we have this fear, this distance, which... Honestly, it takes some effort to overcome. I have some dear closest friends here in Colorado Springs. They've adopted a Muslim family that moved in, uh, a husband, wife, and three little kids. And they invite them in for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they go to plays and concerts together. Uh, The Muslims coming to this country, even though they seem and are somewhat separatistic, they also want to learn the culture and build friendships. So we, as followers of Jesus, should not be afraid to build relationship, to say hi, to uh, give them a smile, to share an encouraging word. And uh, we are ambassadors for Christ, whether it's uh, Christians, Muslims, or Jews, to, uh, to share the love of Jesus with those around us. In many ways, God has brought the mission field to our back door. And grab a cab or go to the airport or go to Walmart, you'll see the mission field that God has brought to us. So let us not be ashamed or timid. Uh, we have the gospel that's of love and power and a strong mind. Yeah, and then pray, pray, and pray, right? Yes, absolutely. Pray for boldness. Pray for love. I understand it can be challenging to love these people because they seem so different from us. And we have all this image stereotypes of what they are. But to get past that and love in the name of Jesus, not slink back in timidity or fear. Wayne, thanks for what you're doing. And thank you for the years of service here at Faith Radio and KTIS. Hey, it's a privilege to be back on with you, Bill. Thanks so much, and love to all my friends there at Northwestern Media. Thanks again. Wayne Peterson's been my guest. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you to uh, Wayne and to uh, Chris Palmer and Rebecca and Patrick. Really a, a great, great day. If you missed any of it, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com, check out the show page, and you can hear the podcast. 
or pass it on to a friend. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow.